Hey everyone, I don't usually do this, but in light of recent events, friends suggested that I republish this episode. If you haven't heard, last night eight workers in massage parlors were murdered in Atlanta, in the southeastern region of the United States. Six of these workers were Asian Americans. In response to the massacre, Red Canary Song, a US-based grassroots Asian sex workers coalition, tweeted, These deaths somehow mean more because of the rise in anti-Asian violence related to COVID-19, but no mention of how they're connected to the long policing of Asian sex work, which so many Asian Americans and those speaking up against anti-Asian hate endorse. End quote. As it happens, in July of 2020, I had interviewed Kate Zen, one of the organizers with Red Canary Song, which also organizes transnationally, I should say, with Asian sex workers across the diaspora in Toronto, Paris, and Hong Kong. In whatever capacity I can, I stand in solidarity with sex worker and massage parlor workers and activists everywhere in the world, and my thoughts go to those who lost their lives in this hate crime. Before sharing this episode, I wanted to read out the declaration of support that is being passed around. You can find it in the description of this episode. You will also find links to donate in the description and on the Twitter account at FireTheseTimes. We, the undersigned, join the Butterfly Asian and Migrant Sex Worker Support Network in building a community of allies who support the rights of migrant sex workers. In signing this declaration, we commit to listen to the voices of migrant sex workers and to taking their leadership towards solutions that will bring about migrant and racial justice and to improve the health, safety and dignity of migrant sex workers. Migrant sex workers are harmed daily by criminalization, racial profiling, surveillance over policing, stigmatization and consequential discrimination that compound human rights violations against migrant communities working in the sex industry. We recognize sex work as work. Sex workers' labor and human rights should be protected and respected. Migrant sex workers should be afforded all legal protections. We should respect the agency of migrant sex workers and stop imposing labors of trafficked victims. We believe in creating opportunity and promoting health, human and labor rights. Access for migrant sex workers to migrant and racial justice, example anti-racism and status for all, are the best ways to prevent and resist exploitation, violence and oppression against migrant sex workers. We reject criminalization repressive policies and efforts to quote-unquote rescue, which not only harm migrant sex workers, but also denied migrant sex workers agency. We call for the following key reforms to promote racial and migrant justice of migrant sex workers and protect their human and labor rights. Full decriminalization, removal of all criminal laws specific to sex work and related to activities, including sex workers, client and third parties. Elimination of immigration prohibitions on migrants who engage in sex work and related industries. An end to policing, racial and social profiling and the use of criminal or rescue models. Stop using anti-trafficking initiatives to justify the intrusion of law enforcement in places where sex work happens, including indoors sex work businesses. Review existing anti-trafficking policies and programs that conflate sex work with human trafficking and revise policies to remove assumptions that sex work is a form of trafficking or sexual exploitation and full and permanent immigration status for all. Immediately ensure full immigration status for all migrant sex workers in Canada, without exception. Guarantee access without fear to all municipal, provincial and federal services, rights and protection to migrant sex workers. As a parenthesis here, although it mentions Canada, as I mentioned, these coalitions work across the diaspora, in Canada, the US and everywhere else. And I end now. We write this statement in solidarity with migrant sex workers to fight for dignity, equality and justice. As I said, all of the relevant links will be in the description as well as on the Twitter account at FireDeseTimes. Thank you for your time. So this is a conversation with Kate Zen. She's an organizer with Red Canary Song, a US-based grassroots Asian sex workers collective. I wanted to have this conversation with Kate after watching a webinar in which she participated and in which she argued for the importance of transnational solidarity in the context of advocating for sex workers' rights. We spoke about such things as criminalization of sex work and why we should oppose it, 
about base building and about mutual aid in the context of COVID-19. Kate gave us a background into why Red Canary Song came into being and how uh, they've been trying to organize transnationally with Asian sex workers across the diaspora in Toronto, Paris, Hong Kong, New York, and so on. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation and you find it as valuable as I have. And yeah, thank you for listening. So as usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireDSTimes. And if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon on buymeacoffee.com. And you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and BuyMeCoffee has both options. And if you cannot donate, you can still help by reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you. and uh, I am a co-founder of Red Canary Song, which is a collective of sex workers, um, Asian sex workers, uh, based in Flushing, Queens, New York. Um, I've been a sex worker rights advocate for a little over 15 years now, um, and I've uh, also worked as a labor rights organizer with street vendors and domestic workers, uh, both in the United States, in New York, um, and in Canada, Montreal, and Toronto. Thanks for having this conversation with me. Can we just, so can we just start with some background into the, the collective, so Red Canary Song Collective, how did it come about and when, and just kind of like general context? Yeah, so Red Canary Song um, started through the Justice for Yang Song protests. Um, there was a sex worker by the name of Song Yang um, located, she was working on 40th Road in Flushing, which is uh, for a long time a red light district uh, of Flushing, Queens, and she was killed during a police raid on her workplace in November of 2017. Um, following her death, there were many protests that were happening um, by several different groups, not just our group, um, but this created a lot of awareness of this issue. She had uh, previously reported being forced to give um, sexual services at gunpoint by someone who she believed to be an undercover cop. And she also reported that she was being compelled to be an informant on other workers in her workplace. Um, given this is the landscape of a lot of police corruption in Flushing, um, specifically with the 109th precinct, and uh, there had already been several reports of um, extortion of uh, women working at karaoke bars, um, and you know, people who have complained before of being forced to give discounts to police officers, um, what happened to Song Yang and the very public, uh, vivid way in which her death um, was shown you know, on the streets of Flushing, um, it attracted a lot more attention to this issue. Mm -hmm. Our group organized um, around you know, the same time as Decrim New York was growing and as a movement in New York City, where uh, a lot of different allied groups that had been working on the issue of sex worker rights in concert with other issues of LGBTQ rights and um, criminal justice reform came together to pass a bill um, that would decriminalize sex work in New York State. Uh, our background and specifically um, our organizing framework uh, came from the work of Butterfly in Toronto, uh, where I had been organizing prior to coming back home to New York City. Um, Butterfly is another 
collective of uh, migrant sex workers, Asian migrant sex workers, um, that was led by a woman, Eileen Lam, um, who was prior to being in Toronto, um, the director of uh, Jiten, which is a sex worker collective in Hong Kong. So she spent 10 years working in Hong Kong with mostly migrant sex workers coming from the mainland into Hong Kong who were very disenfranchised there. Um, and she had already been doing this sort of regional work, bringing together um, sex worker collectives in Thailand, um, in Myanmar, in um, in Vietnam and, and Cambodia and also in Hong Kong. So she brought that existing knowledge and experience with her to uh, Toronto. And, and I think for me, you know, it was an amazing experience to learn from her um, and also to meet migrants that were going through a path, a journey. Many had come from rural China mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, were working in the city in China due to the restrictions on labor. Um, a lot of them had to work illegally because in China you need a, everyone is, is kind of regulated by um, their, their registration number. So if you are mm -hmm. coming from the rural countryside and trying to work in the city, then you would be like an undocumented worker within China. Um, so you have, you know, certain sex worker activists like Ye Haiyan complaining, uh, advocating against the sort of conditions that migrants within China were working under. Some of these women um, were, you know, them moving to Hong Kong if they had the opportunity to travel to do so. And they were greeted, you know, uh, by organizations like Yilin Lambs in Hong Kong. And mm -hmm. then you see, you know, some women in, in, in Toronto, um, Eileen started her organization because she met some of the same members that she had known in Hong Kong in Toronto and they started collectivizing there. And some of these women have, you know, actually traveled through Flushing, New York. And so you have this migratory pattern where people who have been deeply disenfranchised, uh, you know, throughout the last, you know, few decades of, of China's development that has been helpful for some, but also very, very uh, unequal and um, oppressing for others. Um, you have these people running for opportunity in other places and, um, and you know, due to their status, um, finding a lot of mistreatment by society, by governments, um, faced with like police brutality, faced with mm -hmm. a lot of economic and political injustice. And so uh, the creation of Red Canary in Flushing was our effort to try to be one more um, stop <laughs> along the way, one more part of this bigger puzzle of, um, of disenfranchised women migrating and seeking opportunity in other places. Um, and so we very much tried to create our organization under the similar model that Butterfly has built in Toronto. So I want us to get a bit into the, the importance of representation because on the website, it, uh, like the, one of the slogans is like nothing about us without us. But w before doing that, would you mind just giving some background into like your own, uh, again, again, like with as much details as you can, obviously, or you want. Uh, you, you mentioned that you started in Toronto or was it in Hong Kong first? Uh, yeah, so I am um, a former sex worker myself, but mm -hmm. um, for much of my, I guess, early years in my 20s, um, I kept that very quiet and was an activist engaged in other labor movements. Um, so my mother, uh, when I was a child, my mother was a garment worker and I got to witness some of the early like protests in like the, the you know, early 2000s, late 90s that were, you know, uh, mm -hmm. within Chinatown. Um, 
and with the organizations that, that try to collect wages for folks. My mom also, after the garment factory was actually closed down um, and she was owed back wages after it closed down, um, she, you know, started working other places and, and uh, as a domestic worker and, and other places where she could get um, some income. Um, and so I also saw um, sort of the, the aftermath of, of failed uh, labor struggles or labor mm -hmm. struggles that never got to, you know, and, and what happens to some of the workers that are impacted by that. Um, and I saw, you know, my, the first, some of the first organizing I did was with domestic worker rights organizations um, uh, as a young adult. Uh, and I think all of this hits very close to home. And I, I always wanted to really focus more on the lives, the full lives of migrant women, of migrants, um, rather than necessarily pigeonholing people to a particular profession, especially because for many migrants, all of these jobs are temporary and uh, people have other aspirations beyond the work that they're doing to survive at the moment. And I think that's very important to think about, especially when it comes to sex work, because sex work is such a stigmatizing profession that people end up being stuck with that label, even if it's just for a brief time in their lives. And mm -hmm. so for many migrants in, in sex work, this is something they do not want to um, create a permanent identity around. This is something that for a lot of people is a passing point um, that is not something they even want to think back on <laughs> once they're, they're, they've left the industry. Um, and yet, uh, as a result of that, there's a lack of, you know, advocacy, there's a lack of, um, it makes it very hard to do collectivization or organizing because people don't want to have an association with the industry and they want to be able to make money in order to get somewhere else. Um, so uh, in terms of my personal organizing, I actually thought early on in my early 20s, you know, I worked as a as an organizer for the street vendor project in New York City. And I thought about some of the commonalities between street vendors and, uh, and, and sex workers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, many street vendors were also uh, experiencing a lot of police harassment and, and brutality. Um, when I was there, we were working around the case of Chinese art vendors in Times Square who had these tables where they were painting pictures of people's like names or um, or drawing people's names on like uh, on grains of rice. Um, and we saw that there was uh, over targeting and over ticketing of, of certain Asian um, street vendors. And we saw that the police were pretty much picking on these vendors because the vendors didn't speak English well, would just pay the tickets and uh, would just deal with it time and time again. Um, meanwhile, there were American like vets that were also vending on the same street and doing the same work. Um, and they were men and they were, you know, um, they fought back. And uh, as a result, they were not ticketed nearly as much by police. Um, and so what you see is, you know, when work is in this sort of region of of a gray zone where it's it's kind of semi-criminalized there's not enough licenses you know there's not uh street vendors in new york city often do not most of them do not have the license to vend because those licenses were capped in the in the 70s so most people either have to buy a license off the gray market at many many times the actual price or they just simply face the risk of arrest every single day in their work um, and police then get to pick and choose who do they want to pick on um, because they are 
you know, in that moment, because of criminalization, they are the judge and the jury, and and they are, you know, they are the entire criminal justice system in, mm -hmm. in one person. And as a result, you have you know, very clear racial discrimination. Police have their own uh, quotas that they need to meet. Um, they get compensated extra for their overtime and um, being able to make more of these arrests. And so they pick on the people who are most vulnerable. And, you know, you see in the case of both street vendors and migrant sex workers that people who are women, who are uh, who have language barriers, who are easily intimidated, um, get picked on over and over again, sometimes, you know, often by the same cops, because they know that they can get those people. Um, and you hear these stories over and over again in Flushing, where sex workers say that, you know, they're being harassed by the same cop over and over again. And, you know, there's even really terrible stories about cops who realize that after a while they can get their way with these women and they can make bargains uh like i won't arrest you this time if you do this thing or mm -hmm. and and this is all too common right not just in flushing but we hear about this you know everywhere mm -hmm. across the country in canada and you know other places around the world like um because of criminalization uh you know w women who are working in the sex industry become then at the hands of police officers who can do what they like. Um, and so I think, you know, within the US context, this is particularly uh, disturbing because the US, uh, a lot of the narrative in the United States when it comes to sex work is actually one of human trafficking. Yeah. And the American public claim to have this deep care for women who they believe are forced to do this work against their will or you know they they see the the the, the public narrative right now is one of protecting victims um and yet criminalization is what is putting people um at the hands of not only you know um people who may be trying to take their labor and uh and take a portion of it for themselves um or people who, because of the lack of, you know, police protection or the fear of police police being involved, um, are robbing sex workers or are mistreating sex workers. But also, police themselves are complicit in in you know this picture of 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 women who, over and over again, by every person they encounter in society, um, seem to be taken advantage of. And so the biggest hypocrisy is, you know, these anti-trafficking organizations that are not trying to decriminalize sex work, but are rather contributing to, you know, the criminalization of it while being basically profiting um, from, you know, the nonprofit work that they're doing. You have really well-paid people within these organizations uh, that are spreading often very racist ideas about what trafficking looks like, um, who to target. And they are working hand in hand with police to increase the amount of targeting and police violence against Asian communities, against Asian sex workers, um, or other you know, black and brown sex workers with, with their propaganda that all, almost always portrays Asian workers. And, and instead of helping these workers, what you have is, um, is, is increased deportations, is mm -hmm. increased criminalization, um, is, actually putting people you know at date in danger and sometimes even losing their lives so uh we want to you know our group you know formed around wanting to shed light on this hypocrisy and fight back against it because what we see over and over again is if you don't fight back um no then you're going to be taken advantage of and so many Asian workers, you know, there's a lack of uh, representation in advocacy and a lack of people just pushing back against these unjust 
uh, systems. Along uh, the same lines, can, can we talk a bit about why there is the, the slogan, nothing about us without us? Basically, the, essentially, can we talk a bit about the importance of actually having representation, actual like real representation, not just token representation in these spaces of people who say that they care about uh, sex workers being uh, exploited or whatnot, and yet they rarely actually talk to sex workers, let alone platform them. This is a very important slogan within the sex worker rights movement, especially during the 90s and 2000s, where there was suddenly the emergence of this big anti-trafficking sector that, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of rose in the United States hand in hand with anti-terrorism. So after 9-11, you'll see media kind of saliency around trafficking grow um, in proportion with other sorts of campaigns to increase, you know, funding for police, to increase funding for militarization and for surveillance. And trafficking is you know, very, very easy and bipartisan issue for lawmakers to get behind because who in their right minds would go against um, something so terrible as the abduction of women or, you know, the rape of, of women. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what you see is this like burgeoning NGO sector that was that employs a lot of upper middle class people who have no real uh, connection to uh, people working in the sex industry that are advocating for greater criminalization, that work hand in hand with police, that you know have created organizations where they specifically give data over to the police um, when they are giving social services, which many of these organizations don't even do. Um, so many of these organizations are awareness raising organizations. So their entire purpose is to create propaganda um, that is often racist and untrue. uh, And that justifies somehow their existence. For the ones that do give social services, there's been a huge problem with, you know, their willingness to uh, to work with police and to hand data over to police and the creation of the of this category of uh, of trafficking victim is contingent upon the victim being able to name um, and prosecute uh, a, a trafficker, which you know human trafficking really is a crime against the state rather than a, a crime against a particular victim. Um, it is. A, a crime in which the, the the state then is able to use this uh, to be able to offer, say, trafficking visas or other forms of, you know, alleviation um, in order to then go after what is considered the real criminal. Um, but the problem in, in the sex trade um, is that the kinds of difficulties that women encounter and the kinds of labor issues that people are encountering are often not so black and white. It is not something where you can say, this is a trafficker and this is someone who's being victimized as a trafficked person. Um, instead, you have you know, gray areas where, yes, people are working in sub- you know, in, in, in difficult conditions, oftentimes with long hours, and, and there are issues with that, much like other forms of immigrant labor. But when you took, take a criminalization lens to it and you use the broad stroke of policing, what you do is you actually make it impossible for people to report the day-to-day more minute forms of labor exploitation, whether it is long hours or being taken, you know, too much of their wages being taken by, by the boss. Um, you know, these similar kinds of labor exploitation that say women in you know doing in nail salon work or domestic work are also encountering are impossible to actually fix um, 
when it comes to sex work because criminalization of sex work means that sex workers have no labor bargaining power and on yeah. top of that if they report anything you know everyone gets arrested and if it gets framed as a, as a form of trafficking which you know in this industry anything like you know these sorts of labor stories are, are, are only seen in the light of trafficking then these women are subject to a process in which they could be deported unless they tell the police who their trafficker is. Um, they only get these protections like TVZ or other kinds of, you know, like they're usually under the criminal justice system as someone who is a criminal first. And then they're offered this way of buying themselves out of the system if they can mm. name the bigger criminal. And the problem is, you know, if you look at a lot of these massage parlors and places where people work, um, a lot of these are owned by women who are former sex workers. Um, a lot of times sex workers are coming into this country because, you know, a friend of theirs who are from their same hometown said, come here and work with me and you will make a lot of money. And so these are not relationships that are, you know, generally seen by women um, who are working there as something like violent and exploitative and so for them to give up a friend or the person they're working with as a criminal and understand the types of consequences that will happen for that person that's not something that a lot of people working in this industry are willing to do to someone they they don't perceive in that way and so as a result people who are swept up in these anti-trafficking raids then have to take the crime and the punishment themselves um, so by being unwilling to name a trafficker then they are you know, a sex worker, they are a prostitute, they are the, the, the one that is breaking the law. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, under the US federal law with immigration, um, prostitution is deemed, you know, wrong under the moral torpitude clause. So anyone that has come into this country as a migrant and is doing sex work uh, is, is definitely, is, is illegal. And so, um, so for people that are caught up in this, if you can't prove you're a trafficking victim, then you are a criminal that is punishable by, you know, very high, degree um, and instead of offering substantive help that is centered around the actual needs and stories and 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 you know the actual um, helpful measures that people in this very exploited labor sector are asking for uh, instead the anti-trafficking movement tends to center uh, the saviors they tend to center these cops that are supposed to come in and rescue everyone they center these nonprofit industry um, you know upper middle class um, you know charitable foundations that are about like their own efforts of, of being heroes and and it's a very classist narrative um, and so you know this ends up sucking up a lot of attention and 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 money as well like funding will go only towards organizations where there is such a savior um it tends mm -hmm. to bolster funding for military and you know police so the justice for victims of trafficking act of 2014 uh you know if you look in depth into where the actual like appropriations of, of funding go for these anti-trafficking bills most of the money are not going towards services for migrant workers. Um, instead, it you know it goes towards creating hero core in the police, uh, which is um, you know veterans that have that are able to have a new job in the police, uh, going after sex trafficking. Um, is or that what it's, it's called? It's called the hero core. Yeah, it's <laughs> <I didn't laughs> and it's written that. into the yeah. 
it's written into the JVTA, the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act. Okay. Um, on top of that, you have, uh, you know, the creation of a cyber crimes unit under ICE, under immigration, um, mm -hmm. and the allowance for uh, wiretapping, um, all in the name of trying to prevent trafficking, but really it's about surveillance of immigrants. It's about, you know, um, giving more money to law enforcement in a way that quickly gets, gets you know, very, very quickly goes through um, the lawmaking process because no lawmaker wants to have on their record that they voted against a, a trafficking bill. So, you know, the, the people who are, have the most to lose in all of this inevitably are like migrant sex workers, are, are sex workers who have no voice, who instead are taken advantage of on all sides, including by these nonprofits that claim to speak for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, the sort of mantra of you know of nothing about us without us uh, comes out of out of sex workers not only organizing here but around the world. Um, there is uh, increasingly like more and more communication between sex worker organizations in Asia, in Africa, uh, Latin America, North America, and so uh, groups like NSWP, the Global Network of Sex Work Projects, try to coordinate communication um, and try to you know, do research on like what policies work under different types of regimes. And everywhere people are saying nothing about us without us because the kinds of policies that are that are made, you know, without sex workers involved at the table um, are almost always incredibly harmful to sex workers. I'm also guessing that this would include the um, well, so-called feminists who oppose sex work by actually if not out at like if not openly supporting criminalization, but at least being very silent about it. And so the reason why I'm saying this is because before, so while preparing for for this episode, I was talking to a number of, of friends of mine, all fairly well seasoned activists, I think, and uh, feminist activists in in most of them in the context of Lebanon, a couple of them in the context of Egypt, and I asked them like, what would you want to know from basically from this episode, like from me asking you? And they said, like, how do we decouple the misconceptions from people who are uh, putting aside those who don't have, who are ill-meaning, let's put them aside for a sec, those who might be well-meaning, but who don't actually understand uh, that going through the criminalization route is actually doing much, much more harm than good. Basically, how do you actually tackle this uh, I struggle to even call it a misconception because, I mean, I guess it is a misconception, but it has such, such severe consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, for the people that are increasingly, I think the sex, the anti-trafficking movement is becoming aware of, uh, of this issue. Mm -hmm. Like in the United States, um, you know, in the last like 20 years, the anti-trafficking movement was composed of a strange alliance between like the fundamental religious rights and uh, feminist groups and like very pro-military, pro-police groups coming together in this very weird way um, to sort of, you know, highlight uh, the issues that they see are happening in the sex industry. Um, increasingly, that attention is, is, is given not only to the sex industry now, but to forced labor in general, which is, I think, mm -hmm. where the attention should go. Um, you know, when it comes to domestic work or farm work, you have a lot of migrants coming in that are tied to prohibitive visas that, that make it so their, um, their hosts can take advantage of them, their employers can take advantage of them. Um, and also, you know, 
increasingly people are are seeing that uh, the ways in which attack like to approach those issues, you have to actually look at the immigration system and look at you know what categories are putting people at risk. You can't tackle something like you know sex trafficking without also looking at the immigration system and 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 if you only focus on like the bad guys or you know like criminal justice you're missing the the real picture here of of why people are at risk and why people are vulnerable so so work that anti-trafficking activists are doing in 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 looking at immigration law and looking at labor rights for all workers, including workers that do not have status. Um, what are the mechanisms in place to regulate and to inspect and to make sure that these workplaces are free from, you know, from, from oppression, from harm? Um, I think those are the same kinds of measures that need to be extended to the sex industry. Um, if you, you know, look at domestic work or farm work, you would never suggest, you know, that to stop the forced labor of domestic workers, you need to arrest, you know, go into everybody's homes and, and arrest anyone that might potentially be at risk and including people who are, you know, working of their own uh, volition. Mm -hmm. um, in order to stop, you know, the exploitation of farm workers, you wouldn't say, you know, prohibit the sale of all produce because mm -hmm. produce might be done by people who are forced to work um, in terrible conditions, right? So, um, but for the sex industry, for some reason, you know, the conclusion is in order to get rid of situations where there's um, forced labor, you have to, you know, raid all the workplaces of sex workers. You have to um, criminalize the sale of any type of sexual exchange, even when that is something that is like a bread and butter for people to survive. Um, and so, those kinds of measures are just the logic that is enforced on the sex industry is so different and it makes no sense um, from the way that you would tackle the same problems for immigrant workers in other industries. And so I think uh, the more that activists who, are, who care about this issue are looking at the different systemic ways in which immigrant workers are made vulnerable um, and what realistic um, realistic systems can be put in place to protect those workers and then extending that to sex workers i think that is but you know the best way to actually work on this issue if you were talking about just your own experience uh in new york and toronto and hong kong how if i would just ask you like how would um how can base building through uh this labor rights framework so to emphasize the work component the labor component um Sorry, let, let me simplify it. I'm sorry, maybe I'm just complicated for no reason. How, how would you I mean, explain I, base building, basically, for those who don't really know how it works? Okay, so base building is a process. It, the, I, the word comes out of like Solidinsky tenant organizing in Chicago. Mm. Um, and is part of this uh, um, a model of building political power with people, people power, rather than centered around, you know, um, politicians or centered around you know, resources, money, the nonprofit industrial complex. The idea around base building is that, you know, all power should be centered on the experiences of, of people. And the more that you get people together, little by little through this methodology of knocking on doors, um, having these one-on-one -on -one conversations, mm -hmm. making the ask of asking people to join in 
a meeting, um, building a sense of camaraderie through those meetings that are social in nature, but also then uh, help people to see their life circumstances in a politicized way and see um, their daily experiences of oppression as part of a bigger system. Uh, then taking that analysis and, 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 and a few people within these meetings that stay on and decide to become members of your organization to then build and, and, and create analysis that is not coming from an academic standpoint, you know, from top to bottom, but rather from a grounded uh, way of people's just daily circumstances and lives and how they experience the world. This is all part of um, a model of building people power um, that we refer to when we talk about base building. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of looking at sex work from a labor angle, um, besides, I think, being a sex worker and doing organizing within sex worker circles, how would um, a labor angle look for people outside of sex work. I think um, one way of examining this is actually to look at um, the way that patriarchal marriage has created a division of labor um, where women have been forced traditionally to do reproductive labor for free. It is a form of expected uh, forced labor, if you will, marriage itself, as the marriage contract is a, as a way of forcing uh, the reproductive labor, the domestic work, the sexual labor of mm -hmm. women, um, and keeping women locked out of the economic system, you know, through prohibition of women owning property, which has been throughout the world, you know, the case throughout most of history, mm -hmm. uh, keeping women from being able to participate in public life, um, has meant that women have only have no option but to depend on their husbands. And then putting on top of that an ideological way to enforce that type of uh, forced labor, so that it is tied upon women's reputations, uh, so that it's it's it so that you know sluthood or or you know any type of sexuality that is not abiding by this heteronormative um, obedience to the mm -hmm. person you are married to, then makes you uh, the worst type of human being, right? You said this word is is like animal, like it's less it's subhuman. Um, that is an ideological way of enforcing. Uh, reproductive labor um, within a very patriarchal system that gives power to men in which women's sexuality are actually the like the ownership, the property right of men, right? Mm -hmm. And so for sex workers throughout history, for whatever reason, whether it is, you know, because of widowhood, which is a common reason why a lot of women have engaged in sex work or divorce, or, you know, circumstances for migrant women where they're seeking a different life outside of a place where they have any citizenship or any rights um, and they need to rely on themselves. This way of rebelling against the property rights established um, on women's sexuality by men uh, is punished through, you know, the criminalization of sex work. And mm -hmm. it's punished in a very, very violent way throughout history. We are now at a point in history in some parts of the world where the mores around around you know the practice of sexuality outside of marriage has loosened mm -hmm. um you know this is a sexual revolution in the 1960s primarily in like you know like you know european and north american places but also you know increasing all all over the world mm -hmm. um and now that that part of the ideological enforcement on women's uh, obedience to patriarchal sexual values has been loosened, it causes people to question more. What exactly is wrong with sex work, right? Mm -hmm. What exactly is wrong with women um, 
you know, doing one of the few things that they are actually paid more than men <laughs> for doing, right? Um, and I think this is an interesting point because I think, you know, we're at a point in history where the hypocrisies around our, our judgments of the sex industry and of prostitution are becoming more and more evident. And um, the liberation of sex workers is, is that weird crack um, in the system of patriarchy where it highlights so many of the different contradictions, right? The contradictions of marriage, the contradictions of, of class. Um, and so I think what's really interesting and what's really powerful about sex workers organizing, doing this base building work, um, you know, talking to each other, um, is that it, it sits at the intersection of so many different social movements um, on LGBTQ rights movements. Uh, so many sex workers, you know, in the United States, like there are many trans sex workers who have used sex work to pay for their their um their operations um mm -hmm. uh and of course sex work itself completely contradicts a lot of the the norms around like you know uh, around non-heteronormative sex um it also in the united states is very much a racial justice issue because the criminalization of sex work is so disproportionate depending on if you are a race that is being targeted by police or if you are not many whites and you know quote unquote elite sex workers uh don't really suffer the harms of criminalization almost at all. And, you know, they are only brought to light when, you know, someone is going after a politician and they become the weak link in, you know, another scandal, right? And so there's so much hypocrisy um, in the prosecution of sex work as a crime, uh, depending on race. Um, on top of that, in the US, you know, it highlights, of course, many issues of classism. Um, so sex work is also something that is always existed you know but oftentimes it's 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 a lower class of women that have had to do sex work even as they were in married life so this idea that marriage and sex work are incompatible is essentially a very classist notion if you look at new york city uh, at the turn of the century 1800s when emma goldman um the you know feminist anarchist <laughs> activist was talking about why it's important um to support sex worker rights. She's one of the earlier uh, theorists on this. Um, this was a time when it was said that one in four women, uh, lower class women, I guess, in, in lower Manhattan in New York City was engaged in sex work and brothels were everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a form of work that was almost, you know, for the women that were moving into urban environments, trying to make a living, often working in really low paid garment work and finding it to be insufficient, sex work was everywhere. And it was this idea that women were either married and good women or sex workers wasn't true for the working class. Many working class women were working and were sex workers. Um, and you know, it's a kind of a bourgeois notion of the good woman versus the bad woman, where only people who are, you know, upper middle class who can afford it could be good women protected by good husbands, and everyone else just had to work. Um, and I think this is still the case now. You have, you know, majority of sex workers have other relationships. Our mothers are taking care of an entire life that is separate from this, like, very abstract um, binary that we have of women either being sex workers or being like the good kind of women. Most women who are in the sex industry are everything, you know, and you can't summarize um, any typical sex worker because, you know, I think sex work is more divided internally based on circumstance, race, sex, you know, um, class, then you can find some commonality between all sex workers. Um, and so, I think right now at this moment, um, and it's, a, I think, a very interesting moment in the U.S. Um, 
you know, sort of social justice history in that the last um, 10 years, you've seen the Occupy movement um, changing conversations about 1%, 99% and bringing more class consciousness. Mm -hmm. You have uh, LGBTQ movement and the gay, you know, marriage being approved by the Supreme Court in 2015. And then um, increasingly after that, after gay marriage got approved, you know, people started questioning even more, like let's, the queer rights, queer liberation movement is, is asking for more than, you know, equality and marriage. You're looking for rights for people who choose, who are like trans, who are, mm -hmm. choose to be, you know, outside of the whole system entirely, do not want marriage because marriage itself is, is oppressive in a lot of ways. Um, and then, you know, this is shifting the conversation and opening up ways for, for sex worker rights, for the things that people within the sex worker rights movement have been saying for all time, forever, to be given another look, right? Um, and the mainstream media is much more receptive now to sex worker rights because of the attention to the rights of trans people, right? Um, and then on top of that, I think in the US, you know, since the BLM movement in late 2014, 2015 to today, like people are more aware than ever of, of racism and criminalization and policing, incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a result, um, turning a gender lens on policing incarceration, you see that, um, you know, the majority of women that are being charged with crime are being charged with crime with, like, within like sex industry. And so right now I think sex work is at a moment where suddenly it is at the intersection of many social movements that have been active and that are getting attention and, you know, and as a result, you know, like defending the rights of sex workers also mm -hmm. means uh, defending all these other social justice movements as, as well. Um, but it wasn't always this way. And I can definitely remember just, you know, being an organizer years ago where it felt to me like it would be impossible to fight for sex worker rights because it is so far behind in, in you know, what is considered a priority, what is considered like a fightable cause, right. that there was no way to bring people to even have this analysis. And I think what's really incredible about like 2020 is that people are ready to really listen to all these different arguments. They, they care about immigrant rights. They see these sort of ways in which like global inequalities have put people in this non-human status, which is, you know, that is the worker status that people often come into sex work in. When people, are undocumented, when people are coming out of incarceration, where they are not given full citizenship, sex work being also seen as a non-human place, a non-human destination, then becomes one of the few places where people can survive, can make a, can make a living. Um, and so I think, you know, tackling the issues of sex work and all the injustices that people experience within it requires having that broader analysis of of economic injustice um, as prescribed by law, immigration mm -hmm. law, criminal law, um, you know, economic injustice and trade law, the, the, the ways in which different countries are, you know, and, and races are treated differently um, in value and how that history post-colonialism um, is brought into sex work. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, as, a, as an Asian American, like woman who is also involved in other social justice circles that look at imperialism and the impact on countries like Korea and Thailand, where you have prostitution happening alongside American military bases, mm. um, you know, brought in by the police, by, by the American military, you know, um, it's, it's easy to, to be reductive in, in analysis and, and see it only as something that like all sex work as being, um, a matter of imperialism 
and that the the only way to sort of deal with this circumstance is to is to criminalize the purchase of sex and all i think with with every um with every form of labor in which there is a lot of men in that work um mm -hmm. in flushing this is seen as you know a lot of the the the, the day laborers who are mexican and and latin american day laborers um who are working under very very terrible conditions themselves um they tend to be the ones who are the customers of sex workers um same with militarization um wherever men are gathered together in this way in which they're compelled to do a type of work that is often also forced um mm -hmm. you have women that are working alongside them as sex workers um in in the united states you know the history of the railroad workers the chinese railroad workers who are imported into this country after you know after the emancipation of, of slaves in, in mm -hmm. 1865. Um, these railroad workers were often bachelors and they only wanted to make a bit of money and to return home. And alongside Chinese railroad workers was, you know, groups of Chinese sex workers. Um, and, you know, I think it comes down to a bigger question of forced labor, gender and forced labor, physical labor, um, and the, the, the imbalance and power between, you know, European, white countries and, and other countries um, where we have to really look at um, the way that all labor is structured, the way that all exploitation is happening um, and how women specifically feel that brunt of it um, in the sex trades. Um, and, and you can have that discussion by summarizing women as an abstraction, right? So a lot of times people who are anti-sex work because they see it as a form of um, of militarization, you know, or they see it as a, as, as, as a, they, they often will portray sex workers as a metaphor, a metaphor of the degradation of the country, you know, a metaphor of, uh, in Korea, it's like, um, it's the foreign invasion and rape of Korea, right? And when mm -hmm. you say it like that, you end up abstracting the lives, the complex lives of many people who are trying to live under a system of, you know, of, of neo-colonialism, of people who are surviving um, and who are forced by not, not always the same sort of idea of like, you know, physical force, but often it's just the economic violence of, of imperialism um, mm -hmm. that people are, are forced to do this under. And to erase that and to give, not give them a voice because you would prefer to use the metaphor of them instead, I think, um, is a big loss to a much more complex social justice conversation that we could be having. How has okay, Red Canary been dealing with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Because like, I mean, obviously due to the nature of the work itself, I would imagine that workers would be fairly vulnerable to what's happening. Yeah, so a lot of workers were deeply impacted um, by the increase in policing in the months before the lockdown in March. Mm -hmm. um, there was a very famous case of uh, Robert Kraft a wealthy um, like sports team owner who mm -hmm. um, last year in, in February of 2019 was arrested um, with a scandal um, in Florida with a Chinese massage parlor. Um, as a result of that, um, and due to the fact that some of the workers in this Florida massage parlor were originally from Flushing, Queens, there was kind of a nationwide um, like media attention being given to flushing and mm. saying that it is the, the the epicenter of human trafficking and so that was when you saw like increasing raids um and so 
as a result of that, you know, in Flushing and also across the country, uh, there was more and more policing of the, the Asian massage parlor, not other forms of sex work, but particularly this version of it. Um, and in the months before the lockdown actually happened, there had already been many, many months of like, of hyper policing that was happening that was really, really only attuned to Asian sex work in this particular format in, you know, in business models that looked like the massage parlor. Mm -hmm. um, and so that combined with the fact that the Chinatown and Flushing communities um, felt the stigma of COVID-19 before anyone else. People were already reading the news about, you know, in January about COVID-19 in China, and they were beginning to avoid going to Chinatown. Um, yeah. Yeah you know, not going to the restaurants, like a lot of businesses were failing or beginning to suffer. Uh, so the same happened with Chinese massage workers. They were already feeling it months before the actual lockdown. So by the time the lockdown happened, a lot of businesses in Flushing had already either been cleared out by police or ran out of business because it was over, you know, like people weren't going. Mm -hmm. um, and so at that time, you know, people were like, as soon as the lockdown actually happened, people were incredibly desperate. They had already gone for months without the income that they needed. Uh, so Red Canary, like our work during this, um, this, pandemic has been um, partnering with groups like you know legal aid society mm -hmm. they are lawyers that re represent sex workers um they referred some of their clients to us and we had other members refer their friends um so that we can provide groceries and uh some stipends that we fundraised for this form of um mutual aid which the term again comes out of like you know, like anarchist organizing mm -hmm. um, is about how do you provide for each other without the structures of government? Um, and this is necessary for people for whom the government cannot be relied upon who are criminalized, right? Exactly. There is no other system. Like you can go to the police if you're harmed. So we circulate bad date lists saying, this is what happened here. This is what happened here. Beware of someone who looks like that because we already have to, you know, we don't live in a system of police abolition, but we have to function uh, as if the police don't exist, right? Um, and same with mutual aid, like sex workers, we're not going to get any funding from the government during COVID-19. Um, and so you have to provide our own. Um, the idea of mutual aid, I think, has been watered down a lot during COVID-19 because everyone is claiming to do mutual aid and it's, you know, sharing money or raising money for each other. Um, there is a political tradition that has more radical implications, which mm -hmm. is like, you know, how do we help each other separate from the violence of the state, of the colonial state, you know, of, race, of a racialized, you know, state. Um, for people that have long been suffering under this governance, um, who cannot rely on the help of government or police at all, what is it like to empower each other and build community with each other and um, replicate the systems that we need um, without that violence, systems mm -hmm. that are actually centered on us right yeah, so yeah okay like this has been really really informative I, i'm really very grateful for your time on a sort of a closing note can you uh, for those who want to get involved or want to support red can i song can you kind of point them out to the uh, website the uh, social media what what can they follow and how can they help yeah they can uh so we have uh, a new website that was just created um, it's redcanarysong.net. Uh, so if you would like to support us, we'd definitely appreciate your support. We are continually um, making uh, distributions, you know, 
uh, as the pandemic continues. So mm -hmm. um, more support is always helpful. Um, our Twitter account and Instagram account is at Red Canary Song. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, uh, being active wherever you are and supporting sex workers in the location you are um, and, you know, doing more research into, you know, understanding why this issue is is important for so many movements um, is also a way of like helping us. I think the more that we have people understanding this, um, not in, in the United States, but like everywhere and, and combating the sort of patriarchal ways in which people are living, um, the, the way, that is also helpful for us because I think, you know, at the end of the day, we are all living in this world <laughs> together where we have to fight um, these systems together. So. Absolutely, and I, I would also add to that that the, the resource section of the website is incredibly useful and I would urge everyone listening to this to check that out as well. Wonderful, awesome. thank you so much.